חברים יקרים, ברוכים הבאים ללא צריך וקס. פודקאסט ישראלי או לאומנויות לחימה. התאריך הוא ה-9.11.2016. פעם רק אני, איתמר זדוף יהיה איתכם, מפאת הפרשי שעות, נבצר מיפתח להיות איתנו בתוכנית. התוכנית הזאת, האמת, זו תוכנית שאני יזמתי, והסיפור הולך ככה. אני, כפי שאתם יודעים, סיפרתי כבר כמה וכמה וכמה פעמים. שהייתי בקרדיף בכנס לאומנות לחימה. ואחד הדוברים הכי מעניינים והכי רציניים היה אדם בשם בן ג'אדקינס, חוקר אמריקאי שהציג את המחקר שלו על לוחמה בלייטסייברס, אותם חרבות ש... שהג'דאים משתמשים בסטאר וורס. שמעתי את השם שלו כבר מבלוג מאוד מפורסם שעושה, הקונג פוטי. ואחרי שהתכתבנו קצת, הוא הסכים להתראיין לפודקאסט הקטן שלנו. זאת תהיה, מעבר לזה שזו תוכנית הטרנס-אטלנטית הראשונה שלנו, אנחנו גם אורח השני, שהוא דובר אנגלית, לכן התוכנית תהיה באנגלית. היא תהיה בעל, בוא נגיד, תוכן קצת יותר אקדמי, פחות מדברים יותר על תיאוריה של אומנות לחימה, היסטוריה של אומנות לחימה, אבל אני בטוח שיהיה מרתק. Uh, אני מקליט את זה כבר אחרי הרעיון, אני לא בטוח שיהיה מרתק, אני אומר לכם, את באמת תוכנית uh, מאוד מעניינת, גם על האדם עצמו, גם על המחקר וגם על הבלוג שלו. אני מקווה שתהנו. This is going to be a special episode that we will do in English, usually we record in Hebrew. Today is the 8th of November 2006. And today we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Ben Judkins, one of the most important uh, martial art researchers in the world at the moment. Uh, I, two things that he doesn't, but like, like I introduced him before, I will make an introduction and then we'll put it on. Uh, one of the things that we, uh, he does, one of the main thing he does is this, a very famous blog that probably many of you heard about. It's called Kung Fu Tea. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Ben. Thank you for having me. It's great to be yeah. here. Thank, thank you, thank you for, for agreeing to have this interview. So without further delay, I would like to start with our conversation. The, the, the first and the most obvious question is what brought you to, to the martial art research? Well, geez, I thought the most obvious question would be who I'm going to vote for in the American presidential <laughs> election today. Because, um, you know, I am a political scientist, too. So it's like I had to tear myself away from the television to come and do this very interesting interview. Uh, but I actually, yeah, I, I came to uh, do martial arts research as kind of an outgrowth of my interest in political science. So okay. my background is in international relations. Mm -hmm. uh, and I study globalization and trade. But really what I'm interested in is the way global changes kind of affect domestic politics and sometimes lead to, uh, you know, tension, conflict, violence, kind of, you know, as part of the globalization process. Mm -hmm. so, so that leads you to ask about, well, different communities that you see in countries, how do they respond, um, how do different kinds of institutions either exacerbate or mediate uh, these sorts of, of things. And so one of the things that I was working on was religion and international politics. I was doing a lot of research on different religious movements and whether religions could build social capital and if that social capital 
uh, tended to uh, ameliorate or exacerbate uh, globalization-driven conflict. And, and uh, I, I presented a paper on the Boxer Rebellion and how uh, Qing dynasty policy towards new religious movements had possibly made you know things like the Boxer Rebellion more violent than they otherwise would have been in a totally unintended way. And, And can I stop you for just one oh, second, yeah. please? Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Let's take, if, if you can, when you explain something, not all of our listeners are very, I don't know, uh, know or not very, no, have a profound understanding in Chinese history or things like that. If you can sometimes okay. read like, things like the Boxer Rebellion oh, or things okay. like that, if you get two, three yeah. words about what it is, so it will be right. more easy listening for you. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Great. So... Yeah, the, the Boxer Rebellion, or more properly the Boxer Uprising, was a violent anti-Christian, anti-Western uh, conflict that erupted in northern China between the years 1899 to 1901, when there was a new religious movement of spirit boxers who were practicing martial arts and believed that they could be possessed by gods and, and, and even had invulnerable sorts of powers, and they, they really began to... Um, Uh, to, to hunt down and, in many cases, to kill local Christian groups that they were in conflict with. So as a political scientist who's interested in globalization, you know, this looks like a pretty good case of how, you know, the, the cultures are coming together and economies are coming together and you're getting conflict. So I wrote a paper on Qing dynasty policy towards new religious movements. And when I was presenting that paper, uh, a member of the audience said, You know, you should really look at the things going on in southern China, in particular the Taiping Rebellion. I think that it would help you to flush out your argument. And so, mm -hmm. you know, dutifully, I went and I started looking at the Taiping Rebellion, which had happened in the mid-19th century. And this is a terrible civil war. You know, maybe some historians think maybe 20 million people died in yeah. this particular civil war that had a real religious aspect to it as well. And I was shocked to discover that there are martial arts groups today. At the point, at that point in time, I was shocked to discover there are martial arts groups in China today that, you know, trace their history back to the Box Rebellion. And they're still around. And it, it occurred to me that, you know, maybe by looking at martial arts societies, you know, where you have kind of specialists in violence groups that take as part of their, um, their corporate identity, the management of community violence, that these would be good communities to test some of these social scientific ideas on and to look at. And I was very surprised that there wasn't an academic literature uh, looking at martial arts societies in China and the various ways that um, they had impacted uh, or been affected by, uh, you know, the spread of modernity. So that was really kind of the beginning of my research, academically speaking. Mm -hmm. That's that's very interesting. And and you had any besides the I just say the, the historical concept. You have any reach inside the martial arts itself? Because one of the thing besides your own research, a lot of your activity deals with general martial arts. I see in your blog that you like you review Japanese mm -hmm. martial arts books, and and like it seems that not only you you enter the the how do you say the field itself with the this historical religious context but you choose to deal with broader things like the rec your recent research that we're going to talk about very soon uh, what yeah. made like what made you want to take such such a like just to take the field of martial arts and not just one certain point like you explain now 
Well, as, as I look at this, it occurs to me that you can't really understand what is going on in a single martial arts community in pristine isolation from the rest of the environment. So if you look at the book that I wrote uh, with John Nielsen, the uh, creation of Wing Chun Kung Fu, A Social History of the Southern Chinese Martial Arts, you know, I, we spend a lot of time trying to contextualize Wing Chun within its environment so that we can understand it, you know, not just in a technical sense, you know, um, we both do Wing Chun, but in a social scientific sense. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the Chinese martial arts themselves don't exist in a vacuum, right? Um, they have, they, they exist in a broader environment in East Asia and in Southeast Asia, in which there are lots of other fighting systems, and these things have brushed up against each other at many different points in history and in many different ways, right? You know, so in the Ming Dynasty, you have Japanese and Chinese martial artists coming Mm. together and trading techniques on the battlefield, and then in the early 20th century, you have uh, Chinese students going to Japan and, and being shocked by what they see in terms of what the Japanese are doing to promote Bushido and are coming back to China and saying, hey, we should be doing something like this, mm-hmm. you know, as part of our national, uh, you know, efforts to kind of build a stronger nation. You're talking right, so, about like the national, like how the, the, the nationalization of the martial arts, I understand. Exactly. And yeah, exactly. So to really kind of understand the martial arts in any one place, I think you have to understand the field of martial arts studies in general. So it becomes important to kind of build a body of comparative knowledge, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where you can do comparative case studies, right? You know, there's that old axiom that, you know, if you only speak one language, you in reality speak, you understand none, right? You know, you, you have to have seen the martial arts um, in a social or historical context from more than one perspective. Mm-hmm. before you can really begin to grasp what is new and unique and interesting. Now, I do not claim to be an expert in all of these areas. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, recently I, I have been doing a lot of reading about stick and machete fighting in the Afro-Caribbean world, and so I have just had my eyes opened up to this, you know, huge new, new domain of African and new world martial arts that, you know, before a month ago, I didn't know anything about. There's always this new stuff out there yeah. that, you know, I want to talk about on my blog. And I don't want to claim to be an expert, but I think it's really helpful from a comparative context to be able to, you know, see how things sit up against each other. You know, plus as a social scientist, you know, I was really trained in the comparative case study method. Yeah. You know, rather than in the area studies method. So there's that too. That, that's very interesting what you're saying. Also, uh, if I understand, like from the, the little that I read in your blog, you deal mainly with, how can I say, less the modern things. And uh, of course, more so the like, listeners are, are Israeli. Things like Rav Maga or like more recent or more European things is martial arts that you deal with relatively, but not as much. And I see that uh, you, you focus more on what would the, traditional or I don't know maybe traditional is a is for an academic uh, researcher is, is not a word that you use so much but I, I see that like uh, many of the things is is things that have a more how do you say strong history or culture background I presume or am, am I wrong 
No, I, I think that's accurate. You know, what, what really interests me when I look at the field of Chinese martial arts history, uh, and, and everybody's different. There's just so much of it that, you know, you, you kind of have to pick and choose what you're going to specialize in, right? I tend to actually be very interested in the Republic of China period. So I, a lot of my work focuses on what goes on between, I don't know, say, let's say 1890 and 1945. You know, that, mm-hmm. that kind of modern Chinese history. So it's not modern like, you know, it happened yesterday, but it's, you know, 20th century, early 20th century Chinese history. Yeah. Uh, I think it is very, very important. Now, obviously, there are people who look at stuff that is, you know, much older than that. You know, Meyer Shahar, you know, did all of his work on what was going on in the Ming Dynasty, you know, and maybe you want to claim that that's really traditional. But I, I think the Republic period is a good point to look at because it is actually part of the modern world. You know, it's it, it's in this era of World War One and World War Two and all these things that kind of shaped our world. And we, we often forget that the Chinese martial arts that people actually practice today that, that we call traditional and we often think of in our mind as being very, very ancient. Mm-hmm. In fact, these things are actually often the product of the early 20th century to even the mid-20th century. Actually, a lot of the traditional martial arts are pretty modern, yeah. uh, which is why, you know, the Republic era, I think, is a really exciting and fruitful period of study, though it tends to be neglected in popular conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, 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 agree. I totally agree with you. I, uh, I, I know from the, from the point of Japan that all of the, we talked a lot about, about it also many times in the podcast that a lot of the martial arts that we think that are traditional, like karate and things like that, a lot of them are are recent inventions or like uh, hybrids of things that we lived before. I can talk about even Aikido, but that's uh, it's a very interesting point. Uh, I wanted to ask you also on a more personal level, do you practice any martial art or there's like, you, you, of course, like inside your big research, you made choices and you can t- take these choices to, to different places, you know, and you choose to deal with martial arts. What there's something on a person level that made it for you more interesting do you practice it or there's uh what, what made you more i don't say what made you choose this path and not another one like i don't know calligraphy or art or anything else um yeah that, that, that's a very complicated question because yes i do practice martial arts however i i don't think that that is sufficient to explain why i study them academically there are lots and lots of academics who practice martial arts, just like there are lots of academics who play tennis. Mm. And most academics never take up the academic study of tennis, you know, yeah. or the martial arts, mm-hmm. right? That's um, a, that's so, a point. Yeah. yeah, you know, so, so, so you, you can look at it from that standpoint. Now, in terms of my personal practice, you know, growing up in America, I was introduced to Taekwondo as a, as a kid, mm. just like practically every other American kid in the small town was. And you know, I did Taekwondo for a while, did it a little bit more in college. Uh, I uh, lived in Japan for, you know, a semester, and I did some Kendo over there, which I, I quite loved, but there was no way to study it when I came back to the United States. Mm-hmm. I really didn't have time for martial arts when I was in graduate school. Um, you know, that, that, was, that was a pretty intense period. I, I went to Columbia, New York City, and I actually remember thinking, i got to get down to Chinatown 
and, you know, see if I can find a martial arts class. But, you know, when you're in a very competitive program like Columbia, it's, it's better to just, you know, do your homework and read. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I became a, uh, you know, when I, when I got a job teaching at the University of Utah in Salt Lake, I had an opportunity to begin to practice martial arts again. And it was really kind of inspired by my wife. Uh, you know, my, my wife, you know, had something, you know, happen and it got her thinking about martial arts. And, you know, we decided that we would go and do a martial arts class together. Wow. And yeah, you know, of course, you know, she did the martial art for like a year and then decided, okay, you know, she had the basic, you know, self-defense skills that she was interested in and, and she was out. She was on to other things mm-hmm. at that point. Whereas I looked at this and I was like, oh, wait a second. No, actually, this is dovetailing very nicely with my research interests, mm-hmm. you know, that I was just describing where we're looking at globalization and, and conflict. Uh, plus, you know, I, I had been introduced to Wing Chun, this southern Chinese form of Kung Fu, the type of bodily movement that you see in the southern Chinese martial arts. It's just very different than anything that I had experienced in you know, Japanese or, or Korean styles before. And so I was intrigued by it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so at that point I began to, like any good academic, you know, compulsively research this. And I discovered, hey, wait a second, there are ways that I can advance my professional research agenda by focusing on this. I don't think I could have advanced my professional research agenda by having focused, let's say, on, you know, calligraphy. You know, those calligraphers just weren't getting out there. And, yeah you know, mixing it up, um, you know, in the early 20th century battlefield, quite the same way that martial artists. Yes, are. yes. Okay. Okay. I, yeah, you're right. That's, that's okay. Thank you. That, that was very interesting. Like it's, it sounds like that, that, that nobody, like the, the script was too, it was planned ahead, you know, that the martial arts and the research just came together at the right moment, in the right time, you know, in the right yeah, place. It, yeah, I think that's it. It was, it was a, a great example of serendipity, you know, and of course, My Wing Chun teacher, John Nielsen, you know, who I met at this point in time, well, you know, he also has a master's degree and he was working at the University of Utah. You know, he, he was teaching there. And so, so I was very fortunate that the Wing Chun teacher I, I ended up with was someone who was interested in thinking, you know, not just about the history of, you know, Wing Chun, because, of course, people fight about the history of Wing Chun all the time. Um, but, you know, he wanted to go on and think about, you know, the sociology of it, you know, and, and some of those, you know, more academic subjects, too. So, again, you know, that's just incredibly lucky. I, I can't imagine that, that most people would have fallen into a situation that worked that well. Wow. Wow. That's, that sounds interesting. I want to, if, if you may, like, I want to talk about the next thing we agreed we're going to talk about, about your, uh, when, I, when I was in Cardiff, I told our listeners many times about the, con- the conference, how eye-opening it was for me. And one of, for me, one of the best talks and the most eye-openers for, I would say, for a, a, a graduate student about what you can do in the academy was your keynote. And you talked, it was an anthropological research about uh, lightsabers, duels, or, or fights, or I don't know, I bet you have a better word to, to describe what you research. And it would be great if you could describe a little bit uh, the, the, your research, what did you find, yes. and talk a, yeah, give us a few absolutely. words. Yeah, so one of my current, I have too many current research projects, you know, so it's always <laughs> the case. You know, finding time is the, the, 
the big thing. But yeah, about, you know, this time last year, I, I found myself sitting around saying, gee, Ben, what can you do to make your life more challenging? And uh, I decided that I would like to start an ethnographic research project. Now, that last book that I wrote um, is very historical, even though I practice Wing Chun and, you know, actually I'm an instructor in Wing Chun now and my co-author has been teaching Wing Chun for many years. We didn't write an ethnography of Wing Chun. We didn't talk about our personal experience, right? We wrote straight up social history with some social scientific theory in there. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm working on another book project now called Kung Fu Diplomacy, looking at how governments have become involved with, the, you know, the martial arts as a way to promote their public diplomacy. But again, it's very historically oriented. Mm -hmm. So again, with political science theory. And I was like, you know, that that's great. But in my blog, I keep reading all of this really wonderful, rich, descriptive ethnography. And my dad is an anthropologist. So I, I grew up as his research assistant. Right? I, I've seen a lot of that. And I was like, I, I want to do some ethnography, um, you know, just to, you know, just to mix it up, just to kind of do something a, a little bit different. So I started looking at uh, different local martial arts groups uh, to see what what was what was fun, uh, what was interesting, what would be a fruitful research area, and I discovered that there was a a group here in Central New York, and I'm not going to use their name because they're an active research site, mm -hmm. but there was a group here in uh, Central New York that is teaching lightsaber combat. So basically, they are attempting to recreate the sorts of lightsaber duels that you might see in the movies. But the people who run this are all lifelong professional martial arts instructors and fencing instructors. I want to stop you for just one do. second. And so they're trying ben, can to... I stop you for just one second? Yeah. Um, now, I, I'm not yeah. sure that all of our listeners are Star Wars fans, but just to make clear, lightsabers are these laser, uh, laser swords that they use in the Star Wars trilogy. Just to make that exactly. point clear. Sorry for, for, yeah. for cutting you in the middle. Could please continue. I oh, know. Yeah, no, they're, they're the iconic weapon of the Jedi Knight from the lightsaber series. So these are the swords that you see Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader fighting with. You know, they're these all-cutting blades of pure light. Uh, yeah. And that actually makes them interesting because on the one hand, what you see on the screen is very reminiscent of a sword. But on the other hand, you know, swords aren't made out of plasma and they don't have all-cutting blades. And so if you are an experienced martial artist, this becomes a really interesting thought experiment. You know, how could you apply the martial arts knowledge that you know to explain how you might fight with a weapon that's similar, but in some ways very different from anything that you may have dealt with in your previous training? Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, I found sure. this school and, you know, I started the project and I discovered that, yeah, you know, there were all kinds of interesting research questions that this raised. Um, the one that was particularly particularly interesting to me is that, you know, these guys teach both traditional uh, martial arts classes and then they have their lightsaber class on the side and they insist that both of these things are, in fact, martial arts. They are. Um, but their attitude and how they approach them is very, very different. And so that got me thinking about, okay, how do I understand and explain uh, the differences in tone between these classes? What, do, what types of social work 
are these two classes attempting to perform? Why do they attract very, very different sorts of students? And it's not just that one set of students is lightsaber fans. In truth, not everybody, not everyone in that uh, lightsaber class actually, you know, is a huge Star Wars geek. There are some people who are huge Star Wars geeks, but then there are other people who are just there because they like the activity, right? So I mm -hmm. began to, you know, work with uh, the kind of the theoretical writings of an anthropologist named Victor Turner. And Victor Turner was very big into both ritual and theater and social drama. And, and that's good because you can always think of a martial arts class as a ritual transformative environment. And there is a lot of theatrical content, obviously, to Star Wars. It's a movie, right? And people think of yeah. lightsaber combat in theatrical terms. So he's kind of an obvious theorist to turn to. And he had this idea about how different ritual institutions uh, could be seen in the modern world that would, you know, lead in different places that would kind of do different types of social work. And it, it fit with what I was seeing when I kind of compared the lightsaber classes to the traditional classes. And I realized that this was a very important insight because very often uh, in that martial arts studies conference that you attended, you know, you will hear researchers who say in the modern world, the martial arts do X. Right. They function to mm -hmm. do X. And, and we struggle to yeah. kind of figure out why people do this. But, of course, what the lightsaber class and what Victor Turner's theory suggests is that there is no X. In fact, there's a vast range of behaviors. There's a vast range of, of different types of social work that martial arts are promoting. And, and we need to be thinking you know, more in terms of a range than a single linear pathway that all martial artists are on when they practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you did you come to to find a certain? How do you say? Like you, you can say there's a, a certain range, but I I'm I'm sure that you have to. I don't know. I I'm exaggerating now, but there is a difference between ballet and a martial art. Where do you draw the line in in your opinion or in your findings? Um, Well, again, we could get very, very detailed in these discussions. Uh, I, I should let readers know that I actually, if, if you really want the, the gory details to answer that question, I've got a couple papers out there, and you can find them on my blog at Pumkruti or on my academia.edu webpage. Uh, one of, yeah. We will put we'll, a link we'll, on, we'll on put in, the, in the website. So you can just click the links and find it. Uh, one of the papers that I did was actually on the definition of martial arts. So one of the first things that, that the lightsaber combat got me thinking about is, okay, is this a martial art? So why? Right? Because um, it certainly feels like a martial art when you're in the class. But, you know, you can imagine a lot of, like, you know, crusty old kendo teachers looking at this saying, no way is this real. Right? Okay. <laughs> So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I looked extensively at the, the literature debating the definition of martial arts and, and particular framework that a young German scholar, actually a curator of the German Blade Museum named Six Wenzler, uh, puts together recently. And, and he, he put together this, you know, kind of this framework for understanding uh, martial arts, not by a simple definition. That seems to be impossible, actually. No one can really put one of those together. But this framework of, of functions that we expect modern martial arts to do, and you can go down the list, and it's really very—it's—it's it's pretty easy to make a very convincing argument that a this is a martial art, and it's a martial art because 
as a social institution, it fulfills the same set of basic needs and goals that other martial arts do. It has a self-defense aspect to it. It has a fitness aspect to it. It has a health and enlightenment aspect to it. You know, and ballet wouldn't, say, have that same self-defense aspect to it, right? So Mm -hmm. on the one hand, yeah, I I think you could make a very strong argument that this, in fact, is a martial art. And it doesn't matter that it's ahistorical. It doesn't matter that lightsabers don't exist. What makes the martial art is actually the kinds of social work that it does, right? And, and that in itself is an important mm. finding because you and I were just talking about... That's, that's a very interesting thing yeah, to say. Yeah, well, you and I were just yeah, talking about sorry. the invention of the Japanese martial arts in the early 20th century, right? That everybody thinks that these things are very mm-hmm. ancient. But in fact, you know, they're kind of invented traditions in that Hobbes bomb and, and Ranger kind of a way, right? Yeah. Okay, and so mm-hmm. lightsaber combat is fascinating because you can look and you can see how the process of invention happens. And even when everybody knows that the, the texts and the traditions that you're dealing with are fictional, uh, it, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, the, you need to have many things to be a martial art, but one of the things that turns out that you don't have to have is historical authenticity. And that's great. Because wow. almost no martial arts actually are what they historically claim to be. Mm-hmm. Pretty much mm-hmm. all of the ones I've ever looked at are invented traditions when you get right down to yeah. it. Just one, okay. I want to say two things. Uh, the, the definition invented tradition is a, is a book. That it is a, it's a definition that was invented, I think, in the beginning of the century that says that a lot of the things that we believe now that shape us As people are things that were invented recently and not necessarily traditional, just for our listeners. Right, but we believe that they're traditional. And that's the important thing is that we must believe it even though it's not true. And if we thought about it very hard, of course we would realize it, but but the point is we don't think about it. Mm -hmm. That's that's very interesting. Can I ask another question about the light? Is there a method? There's like, I know that they they start, like I've seen uh, in Facebook Mm -hmm. and other places, they open club now clubs all around the world i think even in in israel they have clubs now is there like a one method of how to teach it there is like i don't know like in other martial arts that you have uh, animal stands or i know in aikido certain techniques or it's freestyle and each teacher teaches what he wants you know it is a it's just like any other traditional martial art there is competition and disagreement between groups about what it should be and how you should teach it right so Okay. You know, in that sense, it is really, really traditional. Uh, you know, you, yeah, you, you, the ego is there, you see. Yeah, the ego is there. I mean, you've had lineages, lineages have fractured and they feud with each other. Wow. So, yeah, so it's, it's exactly what you'd see if you were looking at like Wing Chun schools. It's actually very similar to that. Um, there, so, you have like the, 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 the lightsabers, Obi Wan Kenobi stream and Yoda stream and yeah. uh, the seat yeah, stream yeah, kind some, of thing? Yeah, something like that. I, you know, now, To be less facetious, you know, one of the first big groups out there, which actually just disbanded, you know, uh, oh, about a week ago, was called New York Jedi. So uh, New York Jedi was one of the first places to really kind of publicly promote the teaching of lightsaber classes. And they combined traditional martial arts 
with a lot of uh, choreography and staged combat. A lot of the early New York Jedi members were actually actors, uh, you know, kind of Broadway actors, stage actors in New York City. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were very interested in, in okay, how do I for, present a realistic lightsaber battle to, um, you know, to, to an audience? Uh, but a lot of actors are also martial artists, right? So these things are not mutually exclusive when you get right down to it. So you have one group of, of lightsaber schools out there that kind of follow that general pathway. They spend a lot of time thinking about choreography, and often they organize themselves as non-profits so that they can do charity work. Then you have other groups that kind of react to that and say, okay, well, this is all good, but we want to do something that's more of a pure martial art. So you get something like the Terra Prime Lightsaber Academy, right? where they are interested in kind of reconstructing a theoretical Jedi martial art around this idea of the seven classical forms of lightsaber combat, which comes up in the, you know, in the Star Wars extended universe discussions. Uh, but, you know, they have forms, they teach classes, they do do, like, you know, com- some competitive sparring with safety gear and kind of full contact. It, it would look a lot like a traditional bladed martial arts class, you know, if you were to walk in, except that all the blades happen to glow different colors. You know, that, that's really your only clue yeah. that there's something <laughs> deeply off about this, is all the blades are glowing. Then you have... Other groups like uh, Ludo Sport and Saber Legion um, that that are really kind of more interested in promoting this not so more as a competitive sport, kind of as a combat sport. Ludo Sport is particularly interesting. They're the big group in Europe. They go out of their way to say, "Look, what we're doing isn't a martial art because we all know that martial arts are really about being aggressive and hurting people, and we don't want to be that." So, in fact, what mm-hmm. we're putting together is a fast-paced combat sport. Okay. So when you look at the, their marketing for what they do, they're always emphasizing the sports aspect of it. From a theoretical point of view, as a scholar, you know, I don't really buy that. I, I would say there are a lot of combat sports that, in fact, are definitely martial arts. Yeah. And this would fall into that category. Mm-hmm. But again, it's interesting to see that not everyone in the lightsaber combat community imagines or understands what they do in exactly the same way, right? Some people want a very traditional martial art, uh, as traditional as you can be in this case. Some people want to be able to, you know, do charity events and public performances. Some people want to have, you know, a big pan-European tournament structure, you know, where we're going to organize this along, you know, competitive lines and we're going to someday lightsaber fencing even becoming an Olympic sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that seems pretty premature to me, but, you know, that's kind of the goal that they're working towards. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very interesting. If you could uh, categorize or de- define, how do you say, uh, profi- give a profile of, of a person, of the typical person who go to practice, because... I don't know, you can say about Aikido, you, you can profile more or less a certain person, karate, more or less you can profile people that go to practice martial arts. Obviously, here you have a, a whole new crowd. I, I, I assume if you look at it, a, a whole new crowd of practitioners, could you give us, a, I don't know, a couple of, of, of points that you think that are uh, commune between all these of the people that practice, or if you can define the, I don't know, typical practitioner of the, of the lightsabers fight? I don't know that there is one specific traditional 
or one specific type that you always see. Again, like I said, there are a variety of groups, and so that I expect that they will attract a variety of different sorts of people. You know, not mm-hmm. everyone is a Broadway actor who wants to be up in front of the stage. So, you know, right there yeah. you realize that there are certain very specialized communities even within the broader lightsaber movement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, a lot of the people who actually are leading the lightsaber community, who are putting these groups together and who are promoting them, are traditional martial artists, guys who have taught for 10, 20, 30 years in different styles, who have extensive backgrounds in blade work, uh, either Eastern, Southeast Asian, Western. Um, so you have this leadership structure that tends to actually be fairly savvy and to have an established professional background either in the martial arts or something very closely related to it, like stage combat coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when you actually look at the students, though, that are coming into your classes, they begin to look quite different, right? They they tend not to always be traditional martial artists. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I have heard from people in my interviews, and I've kind of seen in my ethnography as well, is that a lot of the people who come into these classes have never joined a martial art before. As a matter of fact, these are the kinds of people who would often never imagine joining a martial arts club or even joining a gym, mm-hmm. right? They, they kind of have come from outside that cultural realm of athleticism um, that the martial arts tends to draw off of. So you see a different group of people coming in. They also tend to be, you know, again, I need to be very careful in practices and saying, look, I've only looked at a couple of research sites. And when you're doing ethnography, the cardinal sin is to generalize. Yeah. Right. So I have to be, I have to preface all this and be careful. But in, in my limited observation with the research sites that I have looked at, they tend to be a little bit more well off than the average martial artist that I see in my particular area. A lot of them have a professional background, uh, a little bit more education. Again, there is a range, you know, so you, there's a guy who's, you know, clerking at the local drugstore, but, you know, there's also the guy who is a professional computer programmer who's pulling down the big box, and it's kind of skewing a little bit more in that direction than you would see, I think, you know, in, in your typical kung fu class. The other thing that I noticed in my research, and this again gets back to Victor Turner, that, that anthropologist and his framework for thinking about it. You know, the average martial arts class in America, the traditional martial arts class, I'm not talking about MMA, but, you know, like Kung Fu or Karate. Uh, you know. Things that, that, that the etiquette is more, it's, uh, how do they give more... Uh... Yeah. Wait to yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly. Things that have etiquette. Well, that etiquette is performing a function. Right? It, it's, it's not just window dress-up, right? These tend to be liminal structures that have a very clear idea of what the ideal student looks like. And they are yeah. working hard to produce this ideal student. Now, teachers in Japan and America may disagree about exactly what that looks like, but, you know, there's a pathway and students are on that pathway. And often students are, are coming to these classes because they feel like, you know, they want to be transformed. They feel like they want to attain some degree of self-perfection or transcendence. There's some 
there's something nagging in their life. I mean, I've often felt like, you know, people who are perfectly happy with themselves do not sign up for martial arts classes. Right. <laughs> That's <They're>, a strong saying. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't know what your experience is, but, you know, very often when I interview people, they have a goal. They have a reason that they walk like in. Like a self-improvement. Like they see yes. martial artists as a self-improvement tool. Right. Exactly. And, and often it's a specific kind of self-improvement. So it might be tied to discourses about masculinity or mm. material success, you know, or, mm. or you know, self-discipline. That tends not to be so much the case with the lightsaber people, right? Uh, and this was really the purpose. This, this was a central argument of my research that I was presenting uh, that you saw there in Carter, that there is no one narrative that kind of binds everyone together in the lightsaber class. So the, almost, it seems almost like the point of lightsaber fencing is to figure out for yourself a pathway of transformation that is going to be very personal and highly idiosyncratic. That's the goal. These are people who are looking for a way of finding a direction because the other kinds of pre-planned directions that society has laid out for them and for whatever reason are not working. Right? And again, these are not marginal people. These are often pretty successful people. Yeah, But the, the idea that I am going to go to a karate class because it's going to teach me to be a real man, yeah. it's going to toughen me up, you know, that's not working here. That is not what this is about, mm -hmm. right? These are people who are looking for much more personalized and idiosyncratic uh, and playful, creatively playful ways uh, of um, growing and expanding and changing themselves. And Victor Turner is helpful because He put his finger directly on this trend, and he talked about this in the 1970s as kind of an emerging thing that he was seeing. And he gave us a theoretical framework for thinking about why some people would choose this kind of very narrow form of transformation, whereas other people would put themselves in institutions that had much more open-ended transformative possibilities. You know, so he talked about the difference between uh, liminal, uh, rituals that were liminal in nature and rituals in the modern world that were liminoid in nature. And so lightsaber fencing is really a very good example of this kind of more liminoid tendency in the mm -hmm. martial arts. Mm -hmm. you know? And again, that's why this research site is fascinating, because I can look at one Sifu, and you know, when he's doing his Kung Fu class, it's serious, it is business, it is militaristic, it is you know, shouting at people, and this won't work on the street. And then 45 minutes later, he's doing his lightsaber class and, yeah. you know, it's all just for fun, except this is the kind of fun that people spend thousands of dollars on and they practice 10 hours a week and it's like a part-time job and it's fun that they take really seriously and it's become central to their identity, which means, no, it's, it's not really just for fun. There's something actually pretty serious going on here. But it's clearly not the same thing that's going on in that traditional kung fu class. Mm. That, that's that's a very like interesting observation about martial arts, and I think this whole new thing challenges what martial. Yeah, very 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 interesting talk. Thank you very much. I want to move to the next subject, if you may, and mm -hmm. I want to talk about your wonderful blog. That, in a personal level, I must say that it introduced me to 
fields of, of research that I, you helped me a lot in my studies. I met amazing people through your blog. I can say personally, uh, I read uh, their post about Dennis Gainty's Butokukai, uh, and then we met personally and became good friends. Oh, all, really? All, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm blog. glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I read it often, and you can see that you publish... Almost every two, three days, even I know when you were in Germany, it was still active. I was pretty amazed. And every, every, every one of your posts or every one of your reviews is really profound. And, and like Dr. Bauman said, it's like almost peer reviewed. I would like to hear a couple of words. What made you make this blog? Because it's not like scholar, like the most of the scholars I met don't exactly write in blogs. And how did it manage to be so big? Um, well, that, those are very kind things to say. I, I would like to lower the expectations of any listener who may now go and check my blog out, actually. It is clearly not peer-reviewed work that I'm putting up there. Uh, it's, it's just kind of a blog. It, it's my thoughts. Um, I, I try to publish a couple times a week. I generally have Monday and Friday things coming out. And because I have done that for a while, I now have a pretty huge archive and, you know, there are lots of, uh, other sources of material I, I can draw from, uh, for instance, the journal that I'm an editor of. So when I was in Germany, I was what I was actually doing was I was reposting um, articles from our, our last uh, journal issue. So I guess that actually was peer reviewed. But generally speaking, my <laughs> blog posts are, are just me kind of reflective. You know, the, the day that post comes down, I, I sit down in the morning, I come up with a subject. You know, I, I review some things that I have writ, uh, read or written in the past. And, you know, I just kind of set a timer and say, okay, I'm, I'm now going to write for four hours and five hours sometimes and see what I can come up with. And, and so for me, it was, it began as a form of personal discipline, right? I, I had already written, uh, my book on the history of Wing Chun that was at the publisher. I was waiting for it to come out. And so I wanted to kind of keep up my writing and my research and, and I wanted to kind of I wanted to force myself to actually learn more about martial arts studies, not just the history of Wing Chun, but to begin to broaden this out and look at China more generally. Look at what's going on in Shanghai. Look at what's going on in northern China. Begin to look at some of these comparative cases, right? You know, when I went to graduate school, there were no classes in martial arts studies. Amazingly, we actually have some now, right? Um, but... Yeah, there were none when I was going to graduate in, school. In Colombia, yeah? Uh, yeah, I, when I went to Colombia. So this blog, you know, kind of forces me to read and think and write in a systematic way. And that's kind of, you know, how I am educating myself about the field. And, and hopefully there are some other people out there who want to read along. And, you know, they're educating themselves. And we are all collectively building up this field together right and, and i think it worked really nicely because then when my book came out there were people who were more interested in the academic study of the martial arts than might otherwise have been the case mm -hmm. um and and basically the key to building a readership i found is just to have a consistent publishing schedule and and stick yeah. to it um, now, in terms of do other academics do this, not so many people are doing this in martial arts studies. I wish more would. I mean, that's one of the things I'm doing is I'm trying to, like, cultivate more of a 
informal public conversation because I don't see my blog articles as formal articles. They're just thought experiments. They're things I'm throwing yeah. out there. I'm experimenting with. I'd like to see more people doing this. But in my field of political science, actually, some of the big names in political science do blog quite frequently. You know, they, they have very well-respected blogs. And I had seen how successful it had been in, in kind of building interest in their specific research areas. And, and again, mm -hmm. in comparative religion, uh, when you look at place, things like, um, like uh, pagan studies, or uh, Mormon studies, some of these niche areas in comparative religion, they really kind of started when people began to put together sections for conferences and then blogs where they could keep up a continual conversation between conferences. And so I thought, you know, a blog might be really helpful both to me personally, but also to let people see that this is possible. And that this yeah. is what the community looks like. And you could be involved with this. And this is the range of questions that you can tackle. And, you know, it's kind of a Benedict Anderson imagined communities kind of a thing. It's like you, you put together the newspaper, people all come and read the newspaper and they say, ha, we're martial arts studies scholars. I mean, I, I was yeah. kind of hoping <laughs> that, you know, something like that could begin to, to come together. That's that's very interesting. Um, one of the things that I, also in the context of the blog, you, of course, it's mainly about Chinese martial arts, but you touch also Japanese martial arts sometimes. Uh, I see that you have a lot, a, a lot of the times uh, um, you have uh, guest writers. I can tell. I remember that uh, Abi Moria, uh, Kung Fu, mm -hmm. uh, quite a famous Abi Moria, quite a famous Kung Fu teacher in Israel, wrote about a small workshop that we did here. Two years ago, you have not only you write, but you you invite other people to write and publish in your blog. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and I would like more of that because that means I would have to write less. Um, <laughs> you know, so that so that's always good. I mean, you know, that the, the downside to my blog is it does take up way too much time. You know, I I, I wrote I started it after I finished my last book. Well, I, I'm now trying to work on my next book and you know it's always a struggle to like find the amount of time that you have to just sit in a library or archive to read you know do that kind of historical writing mm -hmm. um so guest posts are fantastic because they allow me to be lazy or not so much lazy but they allow me <laughs> to do other kinds of work uh but beyond that I, again part of the idea behind this blog was to use it as a community building tool So getting other people's voices involved in the conversation has always been something I have been very interested in. And, of course, it's challenging because everybody is really fantastically busy with their own careers. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's not e actually always easy to line up guest authors. But I, I feel like I have been very, very fortunate with some of the people who have... Um, you know, volunteered to, to take some of their precious time and to spend it um, blog posts for Kung Fu Tea. Mm. Why, can I ask you about the name? Why, why did you decide to call it Kung Fu Tea? Um, I thought because it was quippy and catchy and it was memorable, you know, and, and it's, you know, that's something that you always want when you're thinking about a title. You want something that's easy to remember. But, you know, it, mm -hmm. it's also... a It's kind of a reference to, you know, something that you see in the, in the social culture of the Southern Chinese martial arts. And that very often after people have trained, 
Um, you know, in a traditional kung fu setting, training tends to be not as regimented or as highly structured as you might see in a traditional Japanese martial art. It might start with people, you know, in the traditional Wing Chun school, they start showing up at the school at like six o'clock or seven o'clock in the evening after work. They bow to the teacher and they just start standing around doing their own thing. Right. And they work with people on a variety. They work with a variety of people on a variety of things for two or three hours. And then afterwards, everybody goes out to a local restaurant or to a local tea house. And that's where they talk. And that's where a lot of the culture of the martial art gets passed on, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's that kind of, I don't want to say informality, but it, where you've got pedagogy that is so deeply kind of connected with just Chinese culture. That's one of the things that's always been fascinating to me about the Southern Chinese martial arts, you know, particularly their more traditional guys. And so I thought the name Kung Fu Chi was nice because it evoked that image of, you know, mm-hmm. everybody going out, you know, after the martial arts class to the local restaurant or to the local tea house where you are now going to sit and you are going to talk as a group. And that's where the sense of community is often really going to be established. Yeah, there, there's no Kung Fu tea movie without the scene in the restaurant, you know, nowadays. Yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. Okay, and, and for, for the last thing, I, I would like if you, you want to say a few words about, I don't know, your future research, if you have things that you are planning to do in the future, uh, in your research, if you want to tell us, I give have us some teasers. So, so much. <laughs> there, there is so much in, in my future. Give us that, one or two, you know, the one that oh, you the okay, most. So uh, the, the book project that I should be spending much more time on, and actually is the reason that I am the, have the visiting scholar uh, position here at Cornell, where I'm at right now, uh, is pro- provisionally titled Kung Fu Diplomacy. And what I am interested in is looking at the ways that the Chinese government, maybe the Japanese government, but really kind of primarily the Chinese government and figures in Chinese civil society uh, promoted the martial arts from about 1900 through, well, let's say the present, as a way of kind of shaping and creating a positive image in terms of how the Western public would imagine China and imagine what it meant to be Chinese. And so mm-hmm. this is going to be an extension of the literature on cultural diplomacy, diplomacy, um, which is a thing in international relations right now. You know, public diplomacy is how you kind of create a positive image for your country abroad, right? So how has the Chinese martial arts helped to create this positive image of China abroad? And how was that actually a manipulated process? I mean, you know, that, that just didn't happen by accident. You know, there were lots of attempts by individuals in civil society or people in government to try to promote that, some of which worked and some of which didn't. And so I think that you could actually kind of learn a lot about when cultural diplomacy works and when cultural diplomacy fails. Mm. by, you know, looking at this particular case study. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that kind of, you know, theoretical political science thing, what it's going to do is it's going to allow me to explore some really interesting forgotten episodes of the history of the Chinese martial arts in the West mm-hmm. that, you know, people just don't think about. You know, it's, you know, the, the, the standard narrative is, 
there was nothing until Bruce Lee, and then we got Kung Fu. Yeah, and, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's and you know that that's really not quite right. Actually, there was fascinating stuff going on in the 1920s and, and even before. Mm-hmm. And I would, and this book is going to give me a chance to go back and kind of unearth that and ask some some questions about well. Why did certain things get remembered about the Chinese martial arts? And then why did so much get forgotten that by the time that you get to Bruce Lee, everybody suddenly thinks that this is new and they've never seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so that's, that's one of my projects. That's, that's the big multi-year project that I'm working on right now. Mm-hmm. Of course, the ethnography uh, project for the lightsaber stuff is ongoing. Mm-hmm. There are more papers that are going to come out or possibly book chapters. I don't know, but you know, that, that will either be a series of articles or a separate book, uh, as well. And, and then in, um, kind of, uh, you know, just all my spare time when I was in Germany, I actually totally by accident got roped into doing a day long seminar in vacation machete fencing. Wow. Right. I had no idea that was going to happen. And it turns <laughs> out that that also raises just some great, historical comparative questions so so lately i have found myself doing a lot of reading about afro-caribbean and new world martial arts that i am totally unequipped to talk about at this point but hopefully as i get myself up to speed on it and get my mind wrapped around yeah, it yeah we would like to have you again so maybe you yeah, can talk about absolutely that well. well yeah if nothing else you'll be seeing it on the blog at some point amazing amazing wow Wow, that sounds like a lot, a lot of things to look forward to. Uh, thank you very, very much for this amazing talk. It was really, really, uh, I don't know, mind-blowing. And uh, I hope if we have any time, maybe in the, in the future, maybe we could have you again. Absolutely, that sounds great. And, you know, hopefully I'll be seeing you again in Cardiff this next summer. Yeah, probably. I hope or Cardiff or somewhere else in the world. I'll, I'll, I have to start to work on my papers as well. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, you should, let, you should let your listeners and you should let your colleagues know that, you know, the call for papers has just gone up for that. So if there's anyone out there listening to this who thinks, you know, you've got an idea about the martial arts and you'd like to jump into this, uh, send Paul Bowman a, a proposal for your paper. And, you know, I can guarantee you that you will enjoy that conference. Yeah, it was a great conference indeed. Okay, well, again, thank you very, very much for, for being in the show, and, and yeah, and thanks again. אז טוב, חברים, זה היה הרעיון, אני מקווה שנהנתם. אני איתמר זדוף, ותמשיכו להתאמן. questions, requests, or any other reason, you can reach us on our Facebook page, No Wax Needed. Send us an email at node.wax.needed at gmail.com or post something in our homepage, nowaxneeded.wordpress.com. Feel free to share our stuff as long as you remember to credit us.